Thank you, Stan. Okay, well, not a huge number of things you'll be perhaps uh, relieved to um, hear. Um, nonetheless, I think some um, pretty important uh, developments. Um, the first thing I think is just really to um, mention Joe Biden's uh, warning to Boris Johnson uh, about um, the Irish border and the treaty uh, with the EU and the um, Good Friday Agreement and all the rest of it. Um, you know, you have to ask yourself um, on this one, um, I think, you know, um, from the sort of trivial to the strategic, uh, a number of questions. On the trivial side, I suppose, you've got uh, the fact that um, in the United States, I don't know, this is just from my sort of deep memory, something like 80 million people uh, count themselves as having Irish heritage. Um, well, if you actually take uh, most people who are born in Britain, I think it's also true to say that they have got a direct uh, line uh, of uh, descent uh, from Henry II. I'm just making that one up. It's someone like that, that we're all related at the end of the day. So this is very much a um, self-designation. Um, I think it's also true that if you look back at most people who are born in Britain, uh, they too uh, have uh, Irish heritage. I only found out, for example, uh, that my grandmother uh, was Irish after she died. Uh, I didn't know it while she was alive. And that just shows you something that in, uh, I don't know, she would have been around, uh, I don't know when she would have been born. She would have been born late 19th century. Uh, she was someone who used to be a nurse uh, but was very respectable, and clearly her Irish side was completely suppressed. So I don't know about my father and his brothers, whether they knew she was Irish. Anyway, the point I'm making that in the United States, for whatever reason, um, people like to uh, proclaim themselves as having some sort of Irish heritage. It, it's a bit like in Australia, um, I'm sure for very different reasons, and I'm not sure why, uh, that it's, it's um, certainly um, a mark of credibility, of authenticity, perhaps, I, I'm not sure, uh, to claim that one is related to criminals uh, who were brought to Australia. I don't think there's anything equivalent in the United States, even though uh, Britain was transporting recidivist uh, criminals to the United States up to, I think, 1770. Uh, six. Either way, uh, there's a lot of, uh, in inverted commas, uh, Irish people um, in uh, the United States. So maybe Joe Biden is just doing it for electoral reasons. And that could be absolutely the case. On the other hand, uh, I would take several steps back and try to ask the question, you know, what is sensible? What's rational? Uh, about Boris Johnson and uh, going for Brexit. Well, I could say, and again, there could be a truth there, that this is simply about the pursuit of office. Uh, someone is so determined uh, to become the leader of the Tory party, the prime minister, uh, that they would do um, you know, everything, 
but everything in order to get themselves uh, into that position. And it's certainly true uh, that if you take um, Boris Johnson, he was a Brexiteer by choice rather than conviction. We all know that when he was in the uh, um, David Cameron uh, cabinet, it was, you know, at the 11th hour uh, that he came out and declared himself to be a Brexiteer. But so what's the rationale behind it? As I said, it could be just the pursuit of uh, high office. On the other hand, uh, if you look at Trump and you look at a declining US uh, hegemon, maybe it actually makes sense for the United States uh, to uh, increase uh, the exploitation uh, of its allies. Uh, maybe it makes sense uh, uh, for it to, um, how should I put it, disorganize uh, a potential rival in the form of uh, the European Union. Not that it's looking particularly threatening in terms of uh, uh, the next hegemonic power, but maybe that makes sense. And maybe it makes sense to Johnson somewhere along the line um, that Trump will win uh, a second term, uh, will screw down uh, on uh, Germany and France and the uh, ever closer union project of the EU, and to, po to position himself and Britain, global Britain, uh, as the number two ally or the number one ally um, um, of the United States. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe. Okay. But on the other hand, if we look at it um, in terms of Biden, is he just talking about Ireland or is he talking about something bigger? Is he talking about um, you know, observance of international law? Um, um, does he actually look at the EU uh, less of a threat and more of an asset, uh, ditto, NATO, and all the rest of it. So in that sense, maybe uh, um, in terms of Britain, you know, Boris Johnson and the Tory government have made a monumental miscalculation uh, that uh, um, Trump is the new normal and, um, you know, distance yourself from the EU align yourself with the United States as the EU goes down the pan, in part uh, because of uh, external pressure from the United States, in part uh, because it cannot get its act together, because constitutionally uh, the EU has bound itself with so many checks and balances uh, that what you have is Poland, is Hungary, is the Czech Republic basically putting two fingers up uh, to Brussels and therefore, you know, under its own weight, uh, uh, the EU actually disintegrates, maybe. Either way, I think these questions uh, need to be um, asked. I don't think it particularly matters uh, from a US strategic point of view uh, of whether Britain actually has, or the United Kingdom, I should actually say more uh, precisely, has a customs barrier uh, down the Irish uh, Sea. Uh, I don't think that really matters uh, at all. But in terms of the United Kingdom itself, uh, I think it does uh, uh, matter. I don't know how things are going to pan out, uh, but as things look at the moment, we've got, what, a couple of weeks, maybe three, 
before we know whether we've got some sort of deal uh, with the EU or whether time runs out and we have uh, a hard uh, Brexit. If we have a hard Brexit, it's not a question any longer uh, of a, um, how should we put it, a customs post uh, down the middle uh, of the RSC. It must be surely uh, also a question uh, that you're going to have a hard uh, uh, border on the island of Ireland itself. I can't see how you can have anything else uh, because you'll have one uh, uh, country, i.e. Uh, the United Kingdom, uh, which presumably will be trading with Europe under World Trade Organization rules. Um, and then you're going to have uh, the EU block uh, with free movement of uh, capital, labor and goods. You have to have some sort of border. You have to have some series uh, of checks on that border on the island of Ireland. I mean, that, that, maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but I, I, I can't see it in any other way. Now, if that's the case, uh, that certainly intensifies the national question uh, in Ireland. I actually think paradoxically, um, although this might play, it, play itself out in a way that I completely uh, mis, misjudge uh, and uh, I, maybe I've got this completely wrong, but it does sit, appear to me at least that when it comes to Scotland, things would actually go in the opposite direction uh, because what Nicola Sturgeon has done, uh, the first minister um, in um, Hollywood, she's tied uh, the cause of Scottish independence uh, to the Remain uh, position um, and that obviously benefited her um, um, in terms of the Scottish electorate. Most people are expecting early next year for the Scottish National Party uh, to get a thumping majority uh, um, um, in the new um, Hollywood uh, uh, Parliament. Um, okay, that happens. Uh, that is going to be tied, as we understand it at the moment, to the pledge uh, to agitate for, to demand a second referendum. Uh, that's in the gift of Westminster. It's not a constitutional right. What is a, what is a referendum anyway? Uh, it has to be something that both sides agree to abide, abide by. It has no legal status. Either way, um, if that goes ahead and people then are asking the question in Scotland, um, you know, do we want a hard border? And it's a hard border if uh, we have a hard uh, Brexit. Do we want a hard border between Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland? When certainly when it comes to England, you know, if the EU has been touted as Scotland's so important trading partner and all the rest of it, here is a united economy since whenever, what, 300 years of capitalist uh, development. Uh, to split that uh, with wor World Trade Organization rules, in my view, uh, I, I don't think that Scotland would benefit uh, from that. Quite the opposite. I think what that threatens Scotland with is the sort of fate that Ireland suffered uh, when it got independence, what, in 1921, um, and you had a sort of tariff war, certainly uh, uh, under de Valera. I think that was 1928 and uh, as I've said before basically Ireland's major export was people. Um, it hemorrhaged 
uh, uh, people. And I'd expect the same fate to be suffered by an independent Scotland if it was faced uh, um, by a hard Brexit Britain and a second term Trump. Uh, as I say, <laughs> there's an awful lot of uh, if and if and ifs uh, resting on that. But under those circumstances, I would expect myself um, uh, independence to lose um, the attraction that it's got at the moment. Uh, I could be wrong. And, uh, you know, it's certainly true that if you take uh, uh, nationalism, as well as having some sort of rationality, material interest and all the rest of it, it can also just be plain, straightforward irrationality. Um, and uh, you could have the stoking of English nationalism down here uh, by the Tories, who increasingly look like an English nationalist party, uh, and the stoking of anti-English chauvinism uh, in Scotland. I don't know. Um, uh, either way, uh, as I said, there's an awful lot of if, if, and ifs uh, uh, going um, on there. But I'm trying to work out also some rationality uh, for Johnson's project beyond uh, merely his desire uh, to be prime minister. And maybe it amounts to nothing more than that. Um, but as I said, in my view, it makes sense if it's tied to a United States that is determined itself uh, uh, e either not to resist the breakup of Europe or even to encourage uh, the breakup of Europe. And note, um, you know, who's protesting in the United States about Poland, Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and all the rest of it. Okay, having mentioned the United States, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's died. Very important uh, development in uh, the United States. She's one of the members, I think nine members, or was one of the nine members of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, as I understand it, isn't just supreme. It's not just the top court. Uh, this is the sort of uh, top constitutional uh, uh, body um, in the United States. And, and, and in that sense, you know, things from the Senate, things uh, from the president can be decided in uh, the Supreme Court. Now, again, I th think we've got Dan, uh, Daniel here. Um, he is obviously going to be very useful in uh, discussion. I think if I'm not wrong, uh, when um, um, Roosevelt was being threatened uh, by the um, Supreme Court, he did threaten at one point uh, to turn around and say, well, I'm going to appoint a load more judges and not just nine. But as I said, whether uh, you're allowed to do that nowadays, I don't know. But the point would be uh, that for Trump, uh, this represents, I think, a double opportunity. It represents an opportunity uh, to galvanize reactionary opinion in the United States. Uh, the Christian uh, um, fundamentalist uh, uh, voters, uh, and he can promise them uh, that if I get my appointment through, um, then either through state rights or through uh, um, um, other legislation, certainly not blocked by the um, um, Supreme Court, we can get rid of abortion rights. Um, that can become a cause in his election uh, campaign, stand up to, for the, the right of life and all of that sort of stuff. Um, he can also say that what he's doing is embedding, uh, you know, a conservative majority um, for a generation. 
Supreme Court judges serve, as we've seen, if they want to, uh, for a lifetime. They can serve until they drop. Uh, and if you consider uh, that Trump thus far has uh, appointed, not appointed, nominated, uh, this is in front of the Senate, two uh, um, high court uh, judges, this will be his third, gets away with it. Uh, this means that in order to reverse it, if there's still nine of them um, on the high court, this takes quite a few people dying. Um, so that, that, that can be some considerable time. In other words, he can turn around and say, if I get my nominee through, if I can um, embed them, um, this is something that conservatives in the United States can look to as a bulwark uh, against the incoming tide of, uh, what does he call it, anarchists, socialists, uh, criminals, uh, anti-fascists, and uh, all the rest of it. Um, so in terms of Trump, it's a sort of win-win um, situation. Now that means that some senators who opposed Obama doing that last time round will have to eat their words, uh, but I would expect quite a few words uh, to be eaten. Um, we also have um, the potential scenario, uh, which given um, um, that it's already been speculated around, um, could actually turn out to have, uh, you know, actual material reality, is that Trump loses the election, uh, but actually claims that the election was illegitimate uh, because of postal uh, votes or other irregularities and that can end up in the um, Supreme Court. We saw that with uh, Bush and Gore and uh, with an extra vote uh, on the Supreme Court. Well, who knows um, how they would judge, but you would expect them to be more in favor of Trump than you would expect them to be in favor of Biden. So again, uh, that's an important factor to take into uh, account. Um, I think it's also just worthwhile commenting uh, that uh, if Trump uh, did uh, make that move and was uh, backed uh, um, uh, by, the, um, by the Supreme Court, I myself uh, would not expect uh, the army to act on his, his side, uh, but you could conceivably imagine uh, the army uh, acting in the other way. Um, in other words, although we've had talk on uh, the Republican Trump side uh, that what he should do is declare martial law, uh, it's more likely to be the other way round, uh, that if he's perceived uh, to have, um, you know, stacked uh, the Supreme Court, if he's perceived to have uh, acted in a way that ignores the votes of millions of people, maybe the army would act to remove him. I think that's much more likely than the other way around. And under those circumstances, uh, um, you know, you'd expect right-wing militias uh, to come out onto the streets and who knows what. I would actually say the same thing, uh, that if uh, Biden wins a contested uh, election, um, i.e. Uh, Trump doesn't turn around and say, way, uh, you won, Joe, sleepy Joe, you won. And uh, um, I, I, I concede and uh, you beat me, you know, fair's fair. Um, one would not expect that uh, from Donald Trump. And under the, 
the conditions of where uh, Biden has won in a contested election, I would also expect right-wing uh, militia uh, to come out onto the streets. And how serious a military threat that is, uh, I don't know, except to say, of course, uh, that an awful lot of arms in the United States um, in an awful lot of hands. Okay, let's move on. COVID-19, at least in terms of Britain, um, it looks like we are facing a second wave. Uh, we've now got areas in the north of England uh, undergoing their second lockdown. This isn't like the first lockdown. Uh, we have pub closing times at 10 o'clock as opposed to 11. Uh, it's been pointed out to me before, uh, I don't know about other countries, um, but uh, when they've imposed um, very restrictive drinking hours, uh, drinkers tend to down it very rapidly. So in Scotland, uh, I remember uh, going up to Glasgow when I was a, a wee nipper, and I think they had, from my memory, this is really something from my childhood, uh, but I remember, I think they had a six o'clock closing time. And uh, what used to happen is that people would go from the shipyards and they would have a pint, I think they call it a pint of heavy, which is, we, I think we call it down here, we call it a pint of bitter. They would have a pint of heavy and then a whiskey. And they would drink it like that. And then I'd have another one. And the same thing I think occurred in Australia. And so I've been told by Australian comrades that... Uh, um, if, you, if you went to a, an Australian bar, they actually used to have their bars uh, lined with uh, tiles uh, because at the end of the night, people tended to vomit. Um, either way, people were going into bars and basically killing their nerves. You know, they didn't like their job. They didn't like what they got at home and they wanted to deaden their heads. And, uh, you know, all I can say is, well, maybe uh, this is a measure that's intended to stop people spreading diseases, uh, I think it's a pretty pathetic uh, move. Now, I'm not advocating, by the way, no lockdowns. I'm not advocating that for a second. I'm just simply saying uh, that the idea that because at present time, people tend to get more drunk after 10 o'clock when they have their last two, it doesn't make any damn difference in terms of people getting close to each other because they got drunk and talking rubbish to each other in very loud voices, 10 o'clock don't make any uh, difference whatsoever. Either way, I'm still making the point that in Yorkshire and in Lancashire, North England, uh, we have a second uh, lockdown. And uh, living in London, uh, there's also talk down here that we're only a week or two behind uh, the North in terms of the increase in COVID-19 uh, infections and therefore similar measures will be imposed on London. Now you can blame young people and that's been what the government has been doing. In my view here we've got a government uh, that knew, surely everyone knew, uh, that if you impose a lockdown uh, your rate of infection should uh, decrease and it should even out and maybe decrease but you're not going to get rid of it once you start sending people back to work, when you send them back to school, when you send them back to college, and when you have a scheme, wasn't, isn't, isn't it, what's it, uh, 
eat to help out, go to a restaurant in order to help out and a, a government subsidy to actually go to a restaurant. Once you start doing that, uh, this disease hasn't been eliminated, is a pandemic and therefore will, if it has been eliminated within the UK, it will come from without, but you haven't eliminated it in the UK. And therefore it is a question of when you have another upturn and what they should have used the downturn for uh, is to get the equipment in place, get the testing in place, and they haven't done it. And the idea that they couldn't have predicted uh, that with people going back to school, people going back to work and people being told, well, come and have a test, that people wouldn't have come and have a test is ridiculous. Um, so it's the government I would blame uh, and not young people. Uh, I'm not saying that I approve of anti-social behavior, which is uh, what you often get, but it isn't, uh, um, you know, uh, mass irresponsibility that should take the foremost uh, blame. Uh, it's an incompetent uh, government. So uh, I doubt we'll have um, a lockdown in Britain along the lines uh, that we had earlier in the year. Um, Israel has imposed a new lockdown. Um, I don't know how severe. Um, either way, uh, I suspect we will have measures like that, not only uh, um, in the very near future, I would expect other lockdowns to follow until they actually get a workable uh, vaccine in place and um, start injecting. I think they have to do, was it 60%, maybe 70% um, of the population um, in order to make it, um, you know, uh, in order to kill uh, the virus and, and stop it spreading. Okay, I just thought, even though these statistics are pretty bloody useless, I thought a quick rundown on international uh, statistics would be useful. I'm going to be begin, I think, with infection rates. And uh, at the top, this is total numbers, uh, you've got the United States. Uh, next, you've got India. Next, you've got Brazil. Next, you've got Russia. Next, you've got Peru. Well, as soon as you say um, India, I'm going, well, how reliable uh, are those statistics? Um, I don't know how reliable US statistics are, but I suspect I'm a lot more reliable than Indian uh, statistics. Anyway, carrying on down the list from number five, list of shame, Colombia, Mexico, South Africa, Spain, Argentina. Um, note uh, in that, uh, I think there's one surprise to me there, and it's called China. And that should tell us a great deal. Um, I'm not a fan of the Chinese government, uh, but when it comes to COVID-19, considering uh, that China isn't an advanced uh, economy, considering that this uh, virus began in China and started infecting Chinese people, and given the, the slow start uh, of the Chinese government, uh, not to appear in uh, the top 10, given the size of its population, tells us something about what governments can actually do. There is nothing inevitable, therefore, about the United States being at the top or India being at the top of total uh, deaths. Um, it's not just having a big population. China has a pretty big population. Uh, it doesn't register in the top 10. And quite frankly, I haven't looked down the list uh, to see where it comes. A more accurate figure, perhaps, uh, is the rate of deaths um, when it comes to 
uh, COVID-19. Now, I'm not saying that these uh, statistics are um, beautifully collected and are, uh, you know, um, seamless in terms of um, um, how they can match one upon uh, other. Nonetheless, they, they will serve a certain purpose. And again, I've done a, uh, a top 10. Peru. Why Peru? I don't know. But I think from my memory, a couple of years ago, they had a neoliberal turn. They dismantled a lot of their social services. There were big demonstrations that a lot of the left uh, put their hopes into. Inevitably, uh, they petered out. But that's my guess. Uh, next down the list, it's Belgium. Why Belgium? It's not because Belgium is particularly bad. I don't think it's particularly good, by the way. Uh, but it's, it's there because they count total deaths. Um, so if you're run over by a bus in Brussels, you're counted in the COVID statistics because what they're looking at in terms of Belgium statistics um, isn't what's on the death certificate, it's excess deaths. That's how they do it in Belgium. Something that the British government has been campaigning about uh, to get rid of precisely on the basis of, well, what's a... a, 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 um, a someone getting run over by a London bus got to do with COVID. Well, people get run over by buses in London all the time. And so what we're talking about when it comes to excess deaths is not what's on the death certificate. It's the fact that lots of people aren't going to hospital who would have gone to hospital uh, in order to get a, a, a cancer diagnosis or treatment for cancer or other such diseases. And I think that's perfectly legitimate to have those uh, statistics included uh, as opposed to trying to minimize uh, the impact of COVID-19 as the Johnson government has done. Anyway, that's Belgium for you. Next down the list at number three is Chile. Uh, further down the list, and again, that says something, Spain. Not the most advanced economy in Europe, but hardly uh, the most backward. Ecuador, Brazil, at number seven, right, at number seven, the United Kingdom. Here's a country that's had the National Health Service uh, since 1945. Treatment on the basis of need. But here you had governments, both Tory uh, and New Labour, uh, running the NHS as if they were running a Nissan factory. Um, they ran down the number of beds, they ran down uh, um, things. They also privatized uh, um, um, swathes uh, of the National Health Service. And therefore, they also were in a position, given the cuts in the National Health Service, of ignoring their own war game, um, um, how should I put it, uh, um, uh, experiments. And I think it was called Cygnus. And they ran it on the basis of some disease starts in uh, East Asia, it comes to Britain, what do you do about it? And they ran it uh, in terms of the existing NHS and it ran out of beds and people just started dying in corridors. They did nothing about that exercise. That was under Jeremy Hunt. Number seven, as I said, is the UK. Number eight in terms of death rate. Uh, the United States, again, uh, a terrible, terrible uh, performance. Uh, the United States, we know, has a privatized uh, health service. Nevertheless, in terms of the numbers of doctors, in terms of, you know, the potential uh, health service it could have, surely it's up there uh, leading the world. Next, again, mark of shame, Italy. 
an advanced capitalist economy. And number 10, again, this should tell us something uh, also, and again, might be controversial, Sweden. Here's a country that refused to go uh, into lockdown, and you can count it as number 10. Well, either this proves that lockdowns are useless, or here's your punishment for not going um, into uh, lockdown. Anyway, I just thought those statistics, as I said, however dubious some of them are, uh, at least are food uh, for thought. Okay, we're coming towards a close. Um, in Britain, we have uh, the Labour Party conference, but not as we are used to it. Uh, this is the Labour Party conference online. So there are no delegates, there are no votes. Uh, I had a look at the agenda and um, I thought to myself, my God, would I want to sit through this shit? And the answer has been no. Uh, it's quite understandable that they line up Keir Starmer uh, to have a center stage speech, albeit from his kitchen. And then you have Angela Rayner uh, doing a similar speech from her kitchen. But you look down the list and what you get is the typical uh, labor bureaucracy type conference of training sessions. Uh, you get panels of about 10 to 15 people. You're meant to listen to the great and the good and the not so good go on and on and on about how a Labour government would be marvellous and how the Tories are useless uh, and no participation, of course, uh, from below, no debate, uh, um, no debate uh, between Starmer or Corbyn or no debate between the left and the right. Uh, this is just uh, um, management. Um, it's run from the top. And uh, basically, um, you sitting at home, you're meant to, um, how should it be, it's meant to be doled out to you uh, as if it was nurse giving out, giving out medicine. And as I say, this is very much a reflection of the mentality uh, of um, political managers. It's got nothing to do with the best traditions uh, of the labor movement. It's got everything to do with the worst traditions um, of uh, the labor movement. Okay, um, having mentioned uh, the Labour Party, just wanted to flag two reports that we are expecting. And the first is the so-called Ford uh, report. This is uh, Ford, I can't remember, is it Martin Ford? I can't remember. Anyway, Ford QC. And he's been put in charge investigating uh, the leaked uh, document. This is a document drawn up uh, under um, uh, the Corbyn regime of uh, Jenny Formby when she was general secretary into the behavior of uh, the Labour Party HQ uh, in-terms of the anti-Semitism uh, equals um, or anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism witch hunt uh, but also uh, the role of the Labour bureaucracy at Labour headquarters when it came to Jeremy Corbyn's two general election campaigns. So that's one in uh, uh, 2017 and one in 2019. And when it came to the 2017 uh, general election campaign, there have been accusations and you can read uh, the telephone calls, you can read the texts, you can read the documents of where these full-time Labour Party officials were actively trying to sabotage uh, their campaign. 
they wanted the Labour Party to do badly in order to get rid of Corbyn. Uh, that was what was motivating them. Uh, but of course, this report was leaked. Um, uh, I've certainly read it. Uh, you're not meant to have read it. They, they put threats out to people that if you circulate it, we're going to do you in the courts. Uh, but anybody, but anybody uh, has read it. Uh, and it provides damning evidence of the cynicism, but also the mentality when it comes to the race question and the sex question of, you know, what sort of people uh, we have at Labour Party HQ. But these are the same sort of people, of course, uh, that participated in the BBC Panorama documentary uh, trying to prove anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which Keir Starmer basically threw money at uh, in order to get rid of. So this is an investigation, both into the Labour bureaucracy, but it's also into, it's an investigation into who leaked it. Now, my guess would be that the emphasis in the Ford report will be on who leaked it and why, uh, as opposed to this is what Labour Party officials did. But I could be wrong, or maybe uh, his report proves so embarrassing because he is a QC and he's got his reputation uh, to consider that therefore it's even-handed that this is an embarrassment as far as Starmer is concerned and he simply uh, kicks it into the long grass and it, it, it just goes on forever and it's forgotten and it's eventually closed down. But one thing that we know, we think we know is coming and that is the report into Labour Party and is it institutionally anti-Semitic uh, uh, coming from the uh, Commission on Human Rights. Um, uh, they're due to deliver uh, their report. And my guess would be, and again, of course, it's only a guess, uh, is they will find the Labour Party guilty of institutional anti-Semitism. And why? Because they will use the Labour Party's own definition of anti-Semitism, which, of course, is the uh, Holocaust... Uh, um, uh, the International Holocaust um, Remembrance Alliance definition, or as people insist, misdefinition or non-definition. You can get into an argument about it. And all the examples uh, that are attached to it, such as, for example, you are not allowed uh, uh, to call um, Israel um, and Zionism a racist uh, endeavor. Well, you know, that's anti-Semitism. Um, hey, well, on that basis, um, you know, who on the left uh, is innocent? Certainly Corbyn isn't, and um, most other people who've got any sort of um, notion of solidarity uh, with the Palestinian uh, masses, uh, you're all guilty of anti-Semitism, and my expectation will be um, that that uh, will be something that then um, um, uh, is delivered, and the Labour Party, uh, and this is just worth noting. I haven't read the article myself, haven't got round to it yet, but I would expect there to be, uh, if that is the case, and I'm expecting it to be the case, I'm expecting a mass purge. Um, I am expecting the Labour Party to turn around and say, anti-Semitism is unacceptable and uh, we are going to go through interviewing people or some process like that and we are going to get rid of thousands uh, of people. And there's an article, and the reason I'm saying that is not only because of Starmer and his response uh, when he was elected, his first um, 
um, broadcast was um, 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 I'm going to uh, get rid of anti-Semitism from the Labour Party. Uh, but also there's an article by Rachel Reeves uh, in this weekend's Financial Times promising a purge of the Labour Party. Well, Rachel Reeves isn't yesterday's woman. She's in the shadow cabinet. Uh, she's a leading uh, uh, figure uh, in the shadow cabinet. And I don't see her just saying, oh, I'll write an article for you, Financial Times, and casually bung in it uh, the um, promise of a purge if that isn't a serious um, a proposition. Um, so I think that there will be uh, a serious purge um, um, of the Labour Party. Now, whether that uh, goes really down uh, to the level of general secretaries in unions, I somehow doubt it. Uh, but this is really big time stuff. Um, because precisely it, it poses the question for Starmer of does he follow it through uh, with trade union general secretaries? Um, I mean, you could name uh, the obvious one, and that's uh, Len McCluskey, the leader of Unite, one of the biggest unions uh, in the country. But one can carry on down uh, into the trade union movement uh, um, to other allies of Jeremy Corbyn and others who've uh, expressed their solidarity with Palestine and opposition uh, to the Zionist uh, uh, project. Just a, a final remark on the Labour Party, just to stress uh, that at least from my angle, uh, all of this shows you that the Labour Party is irreformable uh, when it comes uh, to transforming it into a vehicle for socialism. I think that the Labour Party can be won. Uh, yes, that's uh, conceivable, uh, but it would have to be won using non-constitutional revolutionary uh, measures. Why? Because we've seen over the last four years or so with the Corbyn uh, leadership of how the state reacts, how the ruling class reacts to what was actually not a serious threat to them. There was no possibility, in my view, of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn ending up as Prime Minister. If you imagine him uh, doing fantastically well in 2019 instead of badly, and there was a Labour majority, uh, would the Labour Party uh, in Parliament, and we're talking about the House of Commons, uh, vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister because that is what's in the Constitution. And I have to say, no, I could not conceive of it. And even if you then said, and this is really me getting into fantasy, so forgive me, that you put the, the parliamentary party before the general election in a Boeing 747 and you flew them off uh, over the Atlantic and accidentally it crashed and killed all on board and you reselected your candidates in the run-up to that election, and all of them were left-wing, do we really think MI5, do we really think the state was going to allow Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister? And okay, under that weird scenario, if they had, what sort of a ride would they give given him? Uh, Mike Pompeo was over here talking about pushback. Uh, none of us of a certain age will forget uh, the election of President Allende uh, in Chile and the overthrow uh, of Allende and the disappearance and torture 
of thousands uh, of leftists. When I've raised this sort of possibility to comrades on the left of the Labour Party, uh, they assure me that under those circumstances, there would be a revolution in Britain. And I said, well, okay, so what militias have you got? What army units have you got? I presume you've got the same number of army units as Allende had. And we were waiting, I remember, uh, for the um, column, was it General Schmidt, uh, which turned out to be nothing. But my main point is that no, the state, uh, the ruling class view the Labour Party as part of the state apparatus. And we saw the pushback from the PLP and the press and the media uh, um, and uh, the United States in the form of this uh, anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism campaign, which is now considered common sense uh, amongst wide sections of the population. And is basically, if you want to challenge it um, in the, um, um, how should you put it, in your constituency, Labour Party, it's more or less uh, um, an act of revolutionary suicide. Uh, if you do it, you'll get suspended, you'll get expelled. Uh, and that's how things stand at the present time. I suspect uh, that with the report that's coming uh, from the Human Rights uh, Commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, that that purge uh, will be put up several gears. Uh, but as I said, that's a high risk strategy uh, for Keir Starmer. Uh, I haven't got a clue where it will go. Um, and, you know, I'm going to stop speculating. Just lastly, talking about the uh, state and the Labour Party. Okay, the Labour Party is viewed as by the British establishment as its second 11. It's definitely the second 11. It's not their preferred party uh, of government, but it is their alternative party of government. Going from that and looking at the outer fringes uh, of bourgeois politics, um, and the reason I'm doing that is that in Britain, left unity, uh, one of the um, attempts to copy uh, what has been going on in Europe with uh, communist refoundation in Italy, De Linke in uh, Germany, uh, Podemos and the United Left in um, Spain, uh, the anti-capitalist what do they call it in France? Anyway, you know what I mean, the anti-capitalist, something or other uh, that was established, and many other examples. In Britain, we had uh, left unity. Obviously, we don't have proportional representation. Uh, we have the Labour Party, or we had Corbyn, which very much uh, pulled the rug uh, under, underneath its feet. Nevertheless, they're advertising a meeting which shows you where they're ideologically positioning themselves, and they have speaking heinz, uh, Beerman, if I'm getting his name right, he's the chair, I think, of the European left, and he's a member of De Linke. And we also have Marge Ferrare, uh, who's a member of uh, Spain's uh, United Left, which is in a coalition government uh, with the Socialist Workers' Party, which has got nothing to do with socialism and has got nothing to do with the working class movement. Um, and it's basically a creation of uh, the Cold War. Uh, it might claim a, a pre-war, um, civil war tradition. Uh, it might claim a second international uh, tradition. But in reality, it was reinvented, um, um, you know, for post-Franco uh, conditions. 
along similar lines to the operation of establishing the Socialist Party uh, in uh, Portugal. Anyway, it's a capitalist government. And what you have in that capitalist government, supporting that capitalist government, is the united left, but you also have Podemos, uh, another, um, as I say, attempt to get the left together uh, on a soft left position. But these people are in government, they're managing uh, capitalism, and in that sense, what they do is constitute themselves the extreme left wing of the bourgeoisie. And I think we need to understand uh, that. We found it interesting, and okay, this is negative proof, uh, putting forward a, a resolution basically along the lines of, uh, is it 1904, I could be wrong, and 1908 in the Socialist International, thou shalt not participate in capitalist governments, and we've added in, or shadow capitalist uh, governments, and seen, those, uh, seen that motion uh, voted down, in uh, Labour Left Alliance and in the Labour Representation Committee. These are small um, organisations of the Labour Left. And that, that, that vote shows you how much we've lost in terms of our common tradition um, over the years. In part, that's because of the coalitionism uh, of um, um, the... Um, the Socialist International, which I think was reformed 1921-ish. Can't remember the exact date. Um, but yeah, with the SDP participating um, with right-wing parties in the German coalition uh, government, the Labour Party obviously participating in um, the coalition government in World War One, etc., etc., etc. That that is the dominant position, not only with mainstream social democracy and mainstream laborism, it's also now the common tradition. It's unthinkingly uh, the uh, common tradition uh, of what views itself as the extreme left um, in um, that particular formation, i.e., the British. Uh, Labour Party. That's something we need to fight against and we need to re-establish the idea that the job of socialists is actually to overthrow uh, capitalism, not to manage capitalism. Because if you attempt to manage capitalism, uh, it's an exploitative system. And the reality is you then become an agent of uh, keeping down the working class and that tends to produce you demoralization, demobilization in the working class. And this attempt uh, to have um, left-wing influence over capitalist governments ends up actually destroying the left. It doesn't destroy capitalism, it destroys the left. And that's the lesson uh, that we need to teach. This isn't the smart person's road to socialism. This is the stupid person's uh, road to liquidation. Uh, that's actually the truth uh, about this approach uh, to politics. That's it. Thank you, Stan.